Hello, friends. Welcome to this episode of Sarah Shady, Public Philosopher. I am joined today by Annie Berglund and Sam Mulberry, two of my fellow Bethel philosophy, uh, not philosophy professors, but fellow professors at Bethel. And we are here today to talk about the ethics of animal research. Um, This is something that we often talk about in ethics classes with students, and it can range from a lot of different topics like um, research on animals for scientific purposes. Um, Animal rights and animal ethics issues can also include food um, use of animals, treatment of animals, the ethics of hunting, all different kinds of things. So it's a big topic to explore. So what brought you what brought you to this? We haven't recorded one of these in a long time. Why this topic? Why now? Yeah. So in the last year, I have become employed as a public philosopher of sorts. Uh, I work as a consultant on an IACUC, which is a research committee or uh, oversight committee of animal use um, at a medical tech company in the Twin Cities that does some animal research. And so I read through research protocols and weigh in on the ethics of what's happening. And I'm part of a committee that uh, discusses those protocols together and as well as other animal care issues at that company. So, yeah, so it's something that I've been learning a lot more about in the last year, and it's fun to take some of the things that we learn in the classroom and apply them. But, Annie, could you tell uh, our listeners a little bit about your interest in this topic and how it affects your teaching here at Bethel? Yeah, um, so I am, I wouldn't call myself maybe an animal rights activist, because I think that means I'd have to be active in <laughs> my, my my beliefs, but um I a lot of what I've learned about animal rights has um, changed who I am personally. So in the last like 10 years or so, um, I have gone from eating meat occasionally, but not not really knowing what to do with it to now being a vegan. And um, and so I actually teach a course at Bethel, uh, an an inquiry seminar course about animal ethics. And so um, yeah, I don't know. I guess it's just a personal belief that I've developed over time. But it seems pretty deeply rooted in, in who you are. I mean, we as we, we talk a lot, and this is a, a frequent topic, and I think not just because you're teaching about it. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. It does. It does. Um, it, it's something I think about every single day. And I think, um, you know, there's like a, almost like a spiritual element to it as well in that um, – I just feel as though one of my favorite authors, I guess, that I started out my animal ethics class talking about is uh, Wendell Berry. Mm-hmm. And um, he has this fantastic quote in one of his books that's um, something along the lines of it's a dangerous irresponsibility to think of the things that you do on Earth as temporary, but that everything that we do on Earth is made permanent by the Earth. So like every single action I do or every single inaction um, lives on in in the rest of, of worldly history. And so um, if we're thinking about being good stewards and, and um, you know, or, or having dominion over the earth or however you want to define some of the verses that we have in the Bible about animals and creation, um, I think that it's, it's a call to being purposeful in, in how I treat other beings, whether they're human or non-human. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, 
from an ethics as a discipline uh, perspective, we think about animals and ethics, there's there's kind of a spectrum. I mean, on the one far end, you'd have the people that think, well, animals are just a natural resource. We can do with them whatever we want. Um, Mm. And I think, unfortunately, there's ways of spiritualizing that. I mean, I've had students ask before in an environmental ethics class, like, well, God's going to create a new heaven and an earth new earth anyways so what does it matter what we do with this one mm. and I, you know and I think the Wendell Berry quote speaks very powerfully and no God did intend that it matters a lot what we do with mm-hmm. this one um, and then there would be a kind of the alternative position of not using any animal products at all mm-hmm. um, and including the opposition to animal research and that, you know, and your choice to be a vegan um, shows your dedication to that view and I think that's Uh, to be well-respected. And then there's a spectrum of views in the middle that would look at use of animals as something that we can do sometimes if we have ethically justifiable reasons and do it in ethical ways. Mm -hmm. But there's some challenges to going that direction as well. And so we'll be looking at some of that today. So what are some of the things, I mean, I know you can't get into the specifics, but but in your your job with this tech company, like what are some of the um, issues that come up as you're looking at research proposals or what kinds of what kinds mm-hmm. of things are you looking at? Yeah. Right. So there's different types of research done on animals um, at this uh, at this company. And uh, some of it involves um, wanting to know, you know, very early on exploratory things of we've never thought about treating this medical condition this way. Would it be possible to put a device here? Or if we mm-hmm. tried this, what would happen? So some's very exploratory. Then you also have, once a device has been um, developed and you want to see how well it's working, um, and the FDA requires animal testing before Mm -hmm. um, devices can be put into humans, you would do animal testing at that stage. And then there's also a level where um, physicians that are going to be learning how to implant a device historically have learned how to do that on animals prior to practice, before learning on humans so as to not practice on mm-hmm. humans. Although you can practice on a cadaver, but you don't have some of the in-life things happening that that could happen. So that's kind of the spectrum. What, of, are, some, what, are, what would be the type of things that you, where you would start to be concerned of it going too far? Yeah. Or move, moving into what would be an, an unethical practice. Right. Well, first of all, I think that there has to be a clear justifiable end for the research. So not just to say like, huh, what does an animal do if we do this to it? Like you have to have a reason for what you're trying to learn that meets an ethical criteria. Most animal ethics justifications follow utilitarianism, which Mm -hmm. is an ethical theory that says that if we... um, Something is good if it promotes the most good for the most involved or most affected, and it's wrong if it creates more harm than good. And so if a technology has a good likelihood of benefiting humanity, that would consider it a justifiable end. We'll come back to some reasons that we could challenge that utilitarian principle. Um, And then within the ethics of animal research, there are three things that are called the three R's, which is what you're supposed to be considering. Um, So the first one 
um, is replacement. And so that's the idea that animal testing should only ever be used when there's no other possible technology to replace it. So for example, now with virtual reality and 3D printing and modeling, there's a lot of ways to run tests without having to use animals. So you should replace animals with non-living things whenever possible. So if there's a way to do it without an animal, I would say it's unethical to use an animal. The second R is reduction. So you want to reduce the number of animals in a study as much as possible. But there's a little bit of a challenge there because you also have to use enough test subjects that you're going to get reliable data. So there's a lot of kind of figuring out what's the right amount that we would use the data because you it would be unethical in, in this case to use the animal without any um, data coming forward, then that would have been a useless um, harm to the animal. So reduce the number of animals um, and try to maximize the amount of data that you can gain from a particular animal. Um, and then refinement. So thinking about ways to minimize animal pain and distress in all possible ways, but also thinking about how do you promote animal Welfare. So if animals are going to be living in a test facility, how do you promote their welfare in terms of their living conditions, their socialization, um, their stimulation, their food, their housing, their interaction, all of those kinds of things. So those are the three main categories you'd look at to see if it's an ethical justification. Sure. Can I ask a question about the sure. research committee without going too specific? No, but, that's fine. Um, how many people are generally on those and what kind of disciplines are there represented? Yeah, that's a great question. So IACUC committees are um, federal mandates. So okay. in order to do animal research of any kind, you have to have an IACUC committee. So Bethel has an IACUC committee that has to approve the research that's done on rats and psychology or birds and biology, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. um, the committee makeup has certain requirements on it as well. Um, the number of people can vary, but you have to have... Um, scientific members, so people who represent the, the, you know, the scientific knowledge of understanding the, 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 the protocol. You have to have non-scientific members who weigh in, um, from other perspectives. Um, and then you have to have at least one outside person. So that's my role in this. The outside person is usually someone who comes uh, with a background in ethics, sometimes theology or religion, okay. um, but somebody who can weigh in on the um, ethics from an outside perspective. So, is that a requirement? Mm -hmm. Not just the outside person, but that there be somebody with, an, with training in ethics or... That's a really good question, and I'm not sure that I, off the top of my head, know the answer to that. Yeah. Mm. Um, and uh, what was I going to say really quickly? Um, the, okay, so the other thing, too, is um, that the committee, even though there would be employees of the institution doing the research on the committee, they are not... Um, we're not allowed to think about business or profit when hmm. we're making decisions. And the outside person has some roles. In addition to bringing ethical principles in, I'm the watchdog on making <laughs> sure that decisions hmm. aren't getting made for financial reasons. Um, and I am also, my job is also to sort of think about the average community member in the area where we live and 
would there be a rationale by which the average person would understand what's happening? Mm. Does that committee mm. have, uh, beyond a, an oversight role, does it have an education role as well? Like, So instead of just being reactive to what people propose, do, they, do you do any education to say – like what like what you just said about the r's mm-hmm. is really interesting to like is there is there training to research scientists to say we really need to be paying attention to these things or is it is it only reactive to what they're doing right so um it's interesting it's not a requirement that IA cook committees do education but at the organization that i work for uh we are starting to do more education in fact two weeks from now i'm going to be doing um a one-hour talk for the corporation that will be looking at the ethics behind ethical research and the three R's. Um, It is our committee's job. So if someone puts forward a research proposal and we want to push back on the number of animals they're using or the type of animal they're using or some aspect of the proposal that seems unethical, then we generate a conversation with the research team who's designed that proposal. But um, so there would be education that way because it might raise issues that they didn't even know to think about. But we're trying to increasingly make uh, it more visible. Another role of our committee, um, and this would be true of any Aya Cook, is that we can take anonymous or named concerns about animal welfare at any time. So there's a 1-800 hmm. number that hmm. would get called that then we have um, a limited amount of time to begin an investigation. And, you hmm. know, and again, that investigation is done independently of any profit or financial concerns. How much how much burden is on you to understand the science behind what they're doing? Um not a lot, thankfully. Um, uh, some of the people who are listening to our show might know that I am not Sarah Shady, the public <laughs> scientist. Um, uh, yeah, not much. I will say that my committee does a really good job of trying to explain terminology to me. Also, I've learned a lot of te- terminology, and I've spent some time uh, looking at and trying to understand some of the medical devices that we work with, but it is not my obligation to um to understand the science. I will say that I feel like my job is pretty easy because the organization is already very ethical. So Um, they're not reluctantly going through this process. No, 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 no. A lot of good things were already happening before I got there. And I'm just Mm -hmm. replacing another person who served as this role as a community member. Yeah. So Annie, say a little bit more about some of the issues that you talk about in class. And I raised this utilitarian argument for animal research. And so when you're working with students or what are some of the perspectives that you bring in to push back against that way of thinking? Um, yeah, so we started out class kind of defining some terms like what it means to be a sentient and mm-hmm. to have feeling and to be able to suffer. Yes. Um, because that, that kind of undergirds a lot of these conversations. Uh, what What is our responsibility for animals who can feel and can endure suffer? Um, and, and, uh, and, and we talk about how, especially in medical research, um, most most people, I think if you asked most anybody, they would say animals shouldn't suffer for no good reason, right? And I think that that's, that's a good starting spot. But um, then we kind of try to deconstruct what it means, what no good reason means, right? Like what um, – are we certain that everything that is done in the use of animals is done out of necessity and is successful, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and those three R's do come into play uh, for sure in how we talk about it. Um, 
And and so I I come out personally I come out with the assumption of animals have moral rights and the two moral rights and, and you know we talk about how that's not like the right to marry or the right to immigrate right, right? but like the moral right of bodily integrity and a, the right to life mm-hmm. and so being able to have personal autonomy over what happens to my own body because a lot of um, this research is non-therapeutic like there's nobody coming in and trying to revive the animal that has been injected with whatever to recreate a human disease right or any of the uh, predispositions of a human disease or um, and they're non-consensual and so we discuss and we'll be discussing today actually right after this um, what that looks like so I don't know have you heard a lot of those arguments or yeah you know one of the ones that I think is really powerful along those lines brings up a term of speciesism right which is I think it's kind of a funny term because in some ways it makes people roll their eyes of like oh, there's <laughs> another politically correct ism but I think mm-hmm. the idea behind speciesism is really important um, in terms of if we think about racism as unfair discrimination based on race or Mm. ethnicity or sexism is unfair discrimination based on one sex. The idea of speciesism is that we're discriminating against the rights of animals just because they're different species from Mm -hmm. us. Um, And what would be our justifiable reason for that? Um, And it gets complicated because if we're looking at things like sentience, your ability to experience pleasure or feel pain or your ability to have a conscious awareness of Mm -hmm. your life, your life um, experience and your idea of your identity, there are animals that have higher capacities of that than some humans, Mm -hmm. whereas Sarah Shady, public philosopher, wants to make very clear that I am saying, no, I don't think we should do the following. No, I don't think that we should use uh, persons with disabilities for research. Mm -hmm. And then a good species argument comes up and says, "Okay, but if you have animals with higher capacities than those persons, why would you justify one, the use of one and not the other? And that's Mm -hmm. being discriminatory against someone for or an animal for just being a different species yeah and discriminatory on the basis that we can't we don't communicate with them Mm -hmm. in a way that would allow them to give consent or express rights in the way that a human subject of research would be able to right exactly yeah i've heard that expressed as like a human's moral right to bodily integrity in life doesn't surpass that of another non-human living animal that that we all have those rights so Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then it becomes an issue of consistency and whether my argument is consistent, right? Um, if that's if that's the lens I'm looking at things, yeah. Um, hmm. Do you find any that students find these ideas challenging, or um, you know, I, I think or the, familiar? I would be curious if you have anybody who come in who comes in from either of those perspectives where they feel. Um, I would say, not. Not so much familiar. I think it is new territory for a lot of students. Um, I get I get some comments on on making sure that yes yes we care about what's happening to animal suffering, but does that detract from our care about human suffering? Um, and and because that is so rampant throughout the world. So uh, and we do talk a little bit about um, cultural background and how that impacts, and um, even like financial resources and how it is a, a place of privilege to be able to deny some of um, like animal use products. Mm-hmm. Or and and um, I try to come at it also 
as the whole idea that this this whole topic is a gray area and um and it really makes me a hypocrite right because I'm a vegan but also when I have a headache where do I go I get some acetaminophen and fix my headache which is based off of research and testing on animals so being a part being having these strong convictions but also being a part of a culture and a world where I can't I can't eliminate that from my life mm-hmm. um so so those are some of the areas we talk about yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's really interesting. There is so much gray area. And even thinking about, right, as a vegan and thinking of, you know, no use of animal products, that's going to be a pretty clear conclusion about animal research. Whereas there are other people who <laughs> might be vegetarian or vegan for environmental reasons sure. who then would be okay with certain amounts of animal research under certain ethical conditions. So mm-hmm. it, one position about animals doesn't necessarily imply another one. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious um, for both of you, people who have spent a a good portion of of your time thinking about animal ethics in the abstract, right, to a certain degree, um, how much you, how much this impacts how you live? Like I know Annie, for example, I mean, being a vegan is not just a sort of random choice, right? That that comes from from looking at some of this stuff. I'm curious, Sarah, like uh, spending time professionally looking at animal ethics. Are there are there things in your life that you look at differently because you've been really asked to look through this lens? Yeah, um, absolutely. I think that we. Um, you know, in my family, we try to only eat meat that has been sustainably resourced. And again, mm-hmm. there's economic privilege in order, you know, to be able to do that or to think about our use of um, uh, not creating any unnecessary harm and also trying to be thankful um, to animals if we use them as as resources or acknowledging, even acknowledging that, you know, meat doesn't just come from the target, you know, case. So it's it's like knowing the history of that and the impact of that and trying to educate our kids about that a little bit more. Um, as I will say, as a pet owner, you know, I have a dog named Maggie and I love her and she's an important part of our family. And that has made me think really hard about animal research and what's similar and what's different. And, you know, and, and can I be a pet owner and serve on an animal research committee? <laughs> <laughs> and, and how do I bridge those um, those issues? Yeah. Mm. And it's also really interesting because culture plays such a role, even in terms of what animals like. I think a lot of Americans would be OK with animals or research on rats or mice because we don't like rats or mice. But then you talk about dogs and then all of a sudden mm-hmm. people are like, wait, but we can't <laughs> research on the dogs. Um, but it's interesting because ethically, uh, at the level of sentience, they all count the same. Mm-hmm. So some of our, it's also an interesting thing to think about what your gut instincts are and how that yeah. uh, plays off. And, and I wonder if that's, and maybe you could answer this for me, if that's how a lot of uh, discussion about animal research is framed by the scientific community to, you know, like focusing more on mice and rats or... Um, because like beagles are often used, I think, and, and primates have been used in the past at least. Um, and I think maybe there's still some use in the U.S. But um, I guess, um, do you think that the 
like the pain and suffering of animals is understated at all by the scientific community or at least under-researched? Oh, well, that's a great question. And I I don't think that I can speak about the scientific community yeah. as a large, uh, at large. Um, the research that I'm familiar with uh works really hard to determine what animal is appropriate for what kind of test. So um, if you're working on um, issues related to human heart and cardiac systems, a mouse or a rat is not going to provide the data that you need. You need a canine or um, a cow or a sheep um, or pig. Yep, Yep, exactly. Um, And so you need, in order to minimize harm, you need to be able to get the most relevant data, and that might require using a certain kind of animal. Mm -hmm. Whereas for other tests, you might be better off with um, a a different kind of animal. Um, And I think that... Uh, in the scientific community, or oh, I should say this too, on an I a cook committee, you have to have a veterinarian advisor. Okay. And the company that I work uh, with has veterinarians on staff. And part of their training and part of their job responsibility is animal welfare and concern about reducing pain and suffering. So I actually think that's a viable um, or that is a lively topic in the um in the community where animal research is done, that it's not done heartlessly. I think maybe mm-hmm. 30 or 40 years ago it was, <laughs> but I think a lot more is goes into now, and there's a lot of research about animal well-being, minimizing pain, thinking about living conditions and housing mm-hmm. and social interaction and those kinds of things. How about, um, okay, uh, maybe like the flip side of that, do you think that the benefits of animal research is overstated at all yeah or like there's areas in which like an animal model can never be perfect compared to a human model right so i wonder if and i just have to believe that if if we were running with the assumption of this uh suffering of animals is bad that hopefully we would innovate out of the use of animals or kind of go on a trajectory of reallocating our money maybe that could be like the fourth r right right like um so, so I guess, do you think the benefits are overstated or um, just assumed to exist? I think that's an excellent question because I think it's so easy for us, and this would be true in any ethical situation, to get in the trap that just because something is a certain way, it ought to continue that way. And yeah. I think it's easy for us to fall into a trap of, yeah, we need animals for research, so we will use animals for research mm-hmm. and not always be pushing on what are the alternative uh, technologies and how do we make, I mean, I think in an ideal world, we make technology great enough that animal or human research isn't needed, <laughs> you know, at a certain point, like yeah. that you can be, uh, you know, certain of the success of something without having to use another life sure. to prove it. And I think we're getting closer to mm-hmm. that. Recently, I just saw a 3D printer that had created an entire chamber of a heart that had been <sighs> wired electrically to make the same electric functioning of that chamber mm-hmm. of a heart so that physicians could practice a certain procedure in that instead of in an animal. Mm. And it's like you, you mess up, you just press the reset <laughs> button and start right over. And mm-hmm. so I think we're living in a time and age where there's incredible possibility, but we have to be creative right. about that and not fall into the default of, well, we just do it this way. Huh. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about even just the 
uh, creation of in vitro meat too, and mm-hmm. like in vitro organs exactly that would be able to function. And I think that we're like on the doorstep of that. I feel like it's really close. So right. Um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see what the ethics would then be around this new type of type of technology, right? Exactly right, because every every ethical or every technological innovation is going to breed a new sort of ethical questions, right? So, and often those technologies were developed to address a problem. So right now, you know, there's technology done to all, to build an artificial uterus in the sense of to to increase the likelihood that um, an, uh, a baby could survive uh, being born premature. What if we could create an environment that modeled the womb as close as possible so that the premature you know, fetus could live in there for a few months and extend life? Great idea. But then that <laughs> opens up a whole other set of ethical questions of like, well, should you be able to just create human life in an artificial environment, not using a physical body to do that? You know, and that's mm-hmm. only one of many questions that come up. But yeah, so new technology will always yield new ethical <laughs> questions. So I guess Sarah Shady, public philosopher, has some business. That's right. You'll, you'll never go out of business. Right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Annie, do you have any recommendations of things that you would like, would say would be great for listeners to read on this topic? Mm, I just, oh, I'm not going to remember the name of her book now, but um, uh, Aisha Akhtar is a neurologist and she's also an animal rights activist. And I just, um, I believe I just had my students read this article. Maybe we'll just talk about it today. I don't remember if it's the one I assigned. Um, but she she has a really interesting perspective as being from the medical field, but also uh, being a strong proponent of eradicating uh, animal research altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, and she came out with a book this last May um, 2019. And um, it's called, I think it's called Our Symphony with Animals. And uh, look at the overall uh, justification of animal rights, but also particularly in the medical field. Um, yeah. If you don't have that perspective, because I feel like that's one that not many people hold. Um, exactly. And it's kind of not the status quo with this type of discussion. So um, if you're looking for kind of enriching ideas with a maybe a perspective that's very different from your own. Right. And I think that's really great advice, because similarly to how we often don't think about where our meat comes from, we often don't think about where a stent comes from or Mm -hmm. where a medication Mm -hmm. comes from. And what are the um, murky ethical, you know, areas and issues that are involved with our use of technology? Definitely. And even um, books related to and not even just animals, but the way that humans have been used for medical research as well. And that's Mm -hmm. so much of our advancements today were built on the use of black and brown bodies. And what does that mean for um, our society now and, and what we should be doing ethically? So, yeah, yeah really exactly. Because we do still have a lot of issues of medical testing on humans that mm-hmm. we're more, you know, we're more likely to test on lower income people mm-hmm. who will be paid to have the test done on them or testing outside of the United States on right. other populations where or in countries where there are a lower thresholds for approval and um, yeah. Would those be um, called human human volunteers is the word that I've read a lot. Mm-hmm. Whenever, okay. That's the word I usually hear as well. Human subjects or human volunteers. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if you were to, and I'll, I'll give, I'll pose this question to each of you. If someone listening was moved enough by this 
to say, well, I want to read some of the stuff you're talking about, but I'd also like to make a choice this week to be a little more ethical about how I relate to uh, or how my choices relate to animals, things like that. What would be a, what would be something they could do this week that would um, <clears throat> maybe point them in a direction beyond just reading about something? Huh. I think uh, a very good first step at awareness is to kind of make an inventory list of how many animal products did I use mm -hmm. in a week. That might be food that I consumed. Mm -hmm. That might be clothing that I wore, medical devices that I came in contact with. And I try to make an inventory and then ask yourself how much of that was actually necessary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's super surprising. Like, um, when I, Mike and I, my husband and I only use uh, cruelty-free vegan, like, hair products. And, and <laughs> you can, our bathroom is bare. Like, there's nothing in our, in our uh, around our, like, sink or anything because we had to get rid of so much that had been used. And um, that's a really interesting point, how much, even just outside of your home, but, like, on a daily when you're out in public. Um, also, can I use you as an example, Sam? Certainly. Please okay. <laughs> because uh, you went to the Renaissance Festival. Yes. And I had mentioned, oh, yeah, there's animal rights protesters that go to the, the Renaissance Festival. And you're like, why? There are no animals. And then we both were like, oh, wait, there's actually quite a few animals and they're doing many different things that are being used at the Renaissance Festival. So I think even along the idea of awareness, just considering and maybe listing all of the areas in which animals are used um, and being conscious of that fact, because I think we we don't tend to look right. So. When I've talked to my students about uh, different areas in which animals are used and they're writing their research papers, um, they're surprised by some, right? Like the entertainment industry. And yeah. they don't think about how, oh, yeah, there's actually a, a big ethical concern of using animals in movies like, mm -hmm. um, or using animals in circuses. So uh, maybe expanding and trying to think beyond just reducing your meat, you know, thinking in other categories. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. Uh, I'm always learning on these issues, too. It reminds me of several years ago, I was teaching environmental ethics, and I came in on a Monday and said, oh, yeah, we had my son's fifth birthday party at a zoo this weekend. <laughs> and the students were, like, horrified at the thought that I had a birthday party at a zoo and taught environmental ethics. And there's always ways <laughs> to think about this right. in more depth. Yeah. Well, and, and, and Annie and I talk a lot about this, this, this idea that, like, <clears throat> Sometimes we catch ourselves in this spot where when we care about something, it's like the expectation is sort of this ideological purity. Mm -hmm. But we make the mistake of saying if I can't be 100 percent pure, then it's not worth it. Yes. And it's right. like, well, but that's actually that's that's a false choice. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and and to say just in, in the amount this semester we've talked about, it, I mean, the number of times <laughs> I've encountered choices and I still probably make the same choice I would have made before, but I but I stop and think about yeah. it like, oh, I guess this this is an animal ethics choice that I'm making, you know. And it's so I like to say that Annie's like in my head now, and it's you know like I think the more she talks about these things, the more I'm like, oh, that actually that is interesting, and 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 maybe I need to think more about that. So mm -hmm. so I think even that sort of a a move to thinking ethically in a in a broader way. Exactly. I don't think we should make moral perfectionism our goal because we'll always fail. But you can always think about how can I do a little bit better today, this week, moving mm -hmm. forward. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Sam and Annie, for being my guests here today, Sarah Shady Public Philosopher. It's always a fun 
uh, opportunity to talk philosophy with real world issues. So. <laughs> and our goal yeah. is to do another one of these next month. Is that exactly? Yeah, that the idea. Yep, I think we'll be looking at populism and intellectual virtues as we look at our current political climate. So look forward to that episode coming up. And if you have questions, you can contact us at channel3900 uh, at gmail.com. So um, I'm going to speak for the network really quick here. So <laughs> if you're listening, you enjoy this, you want to interact, uh, please email us at channel3900 at gmail.com. Please um Pass this podcast along to people. Pass the network feed along to people. Uh, we're trying to make a big push to get people to subscribe because we're putting out all kinds of interesting stuff. Um, this week, we're going to have five episodes this week of, of different things. So uh, make sure you're coming back, not just for Sarah Shady Public Philosopher, but for all the other uh, interesting things on the network. That's my plug. So. <laughs> it's That's ethically acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to sign out for this episode of Sarah Shady, Public Philosopher. Try to do a little bit of good tomorrow. 